Mac Power Users, Episode 190, Workflows with John August. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. Welcome back, David. Hi, Katie Floyd. We are uh, both still recovering from whatever these colds are, but we just could not pass up the opportunity uh, to talk to our next workflow guest with a big hat tip to our our show notes writer, JT, for recommending this guest to us. Uh, He said, you absolutely positively have to have John August on your show. And we wrote him and he said yes. So welcome, John. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is a pleasure to be here. John, I have to admit, I'm a little starstruck because I just love the stuff you do. Oh, thank you very much. If you uh, if you don't know John, he's a screenwriter and director. He did movies like Charlie's Angels, Go, and and one of my fav- very favorite movies ever was Big Fish. I told you this before we started, but if I was on a desert island, that one would be in my package because it's just so great. Well, thank you very much. And uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Nines. You've just been you've been all over the place with the uh, the great work you've been doing out there. Well, thank you very much. I, I've enjoyed writing them and uh, trying to get them made. Yeah, it is a challenge. We did another show uh, a few years ago with David Wayne. Which Two is, shows. I, yeah, I guess we've done a couple now with David. We should probably put those in the show notes because I think those are really good bookmarks for this show as well, David being a writer and director as well. And David also is a person kind of like me who loves to make things but also loves to sort of challenge the uh, expectations of how we're supposed to make things. So I've gotten to know David. He's fantastic. Yeah, and, and in fact, you guys are really similar in a lot of ways of challenging the technology of Hollywood, and that's one of the reasons why we really are eager to have you on the show. Uh, you know, everybody talks so often about the trouble and you know, kind of the antiquated technologies being used to make movies, and there's guys like you and David out there really pushing the envelope. Yeah, it's it's recognizing what it is you're trying to do and how sometimes the tools that we use to make movies are getting in the way of making the movie we could make. And you've actually gone out there and you've tried to fix that problem uh, because you are you are also an app developer as well. I am, and so most of what a screenwriter does is work in documents that you are basically writing in twelve point courier, basically a plan for making a movie. And the form of a screenplay is fixed to some degree. We have an expectation of what that's supposed to look like, but it's also kind of gotten fossilized um, in the apps that we use in the way that we do some things, and so. Uh, both in a very open source kind of um, let's let everyone let, let a thousand you know flowers bloom kind of way. We have this uh, standard called Fountain, which is a much more plain text, more like a markdown way of writing a screenplay. And then my company itself makes one of the sort of main fountain editors called Highland, uh, which is a way to sort of write a screenplay uh, differently. Well, I definitely want to follow up on that, but I want to talk about some of the other apps you guys do as well. Um, like one of the ones that, that I use all the time is Bronson Watermarker. I didn't realize that was you until um, I started researching for the show, but that that's a great app you made. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Bronson Watermarker was something – most of the software we make is basically I encounter a situation in my life that I find incredibly frustrating, and I say there should be a better app for this, and uh, me and my team figure out a way to make a better app. So Bronson Watermarker is a classic case of um, I wrote the both the movie version of Big Fish, but also the musical version of Big Fish. And when you were doing a reading for a musical, you want to send out scripts to all your actors, but you want to make sure that those scripts don't go beyond just those actors. And so you want to watermark each of those scripts with an actor's name. And what I found very frustrating is 
you know, we had to create 30 scripts, 30 PDFs of these scripts. And to do them individually with the person's name, I was having to like manually type in the person's name and generate the PDF and then type the next person's name. And so that that's ridiculous. That's exactly the kind of automation that an app should make simple. So Nima Yusefi, who's our coder, I wrote to him saying like, I want exactly this. And, you know, within six hours, he'd come back to me with an app that did exactly that. It looked awful, but it was, it functioned. And then we figured out how to make that more general purpose app that any person could use when they had a list of names, a PDF, and they wanted to have all those PDFs watermarked that way. And this really has applications across um, any kind of field. I know David and I are attorneys by day, so as you can imagine, a lot of stuff goes out of our office or is produced internally in our office that is either confidential or for client eyes only or only to particular experts. And if something goes out, we either want it clearly marked that this is work product or this is a draft product or this is for this person's eye only. Um, photographers who want to watermark uh, their work. I mean, this just has implications uh, across a, a far-reaching number of markets. Yeah, and that's what we found. It's like it, it was designed to solve a very specific problem I had as a writer, but we recognized that people way beyond us had those sort of circumstances, so we tried to make sure that it would meet their needs as well. What's interesting, though, is you bring up photographers, and that was one of those things where we had not really intended this to be used by photographers and sometimes there's a case of expectation management because for us, this was for watermarking PDFs. And while we would take other images, like maybe you had a drawing that you needed to, to watermark individual names on, but photographers, when they see the word watermark, they say, well, I should be able to throw 60 photos at you and you should be able to watermark them all the same. It's that idea of that when you say batch watermarking, there's really two different expectations. And so a lot of our work over the last year has been trying to both um, help the person who wants to watermark an image, but also make it clear that, that what we're talking about with that so you don't have dissatisfied customers. Because when we started to allow people to put images in, suddenly our reviews started to fall because those people expected a different app than we were actually delivering to them. Yeah, that's an interesting problem. And, and you know, I didn't really appreciate it because I just thought you were so busy with making great movies that, I mean, this is really a full-time job. You have this, this company and putting applications out. Yeah. It's, it's almost, it's like a three quarter time job. And so I, I have, I have a, I have one and a half times jobs. I have my writing job and I have uh, this extra job and I really enjoy the apps of it all. And I enjoy working with the little staff I have for it. Um, but writing is really sort of my main thing. Yeah. I appreciate that. And, and I feel it. I'm doing <laughs> the same thing sort of. <laughs> Um, I have a question for the two of you, though, as attorneys, because an app like Bronson Watermarker, quite early on after we put it out, someone came to us and said, oh, what you should really do is do Bates numbering. And do you guys know what Bates numbering is? Is that a thing that you guys actually? Oh, yeah. All right. So my understanding of Bates numbering is if you have evidence or documents, you need to number each of those documents in a certain way so that you're always talking about the same document. Is that correct? Right. That's right. And so how do you guys do that? If you have to do that, is it well, by hand? How do you do it? The uh, it, and in my office we do it in Adobe PDF because the Adobe um, PDF application will do that automatically. Mm -hmm. And I've got one case now where we're Bates page forty three thousand, so you can get an appreciation doing that by <laughs> hand. Just isn't possible. When I first started twenty years ago, we had a stamp. Mm -hmm. It was called a Bates stamp, and it's a stamp that every time you punch it, it advances one number. Yeah. And I remember being a young attorney going through and punching each page as they came in. But over the years, we've gotten to where we do all that digitally now. All right. Yeah. And, and, and how is how is the workflow for it? Is it is it good? Is it 
is it tolerable? It's uh it's it's fine. I mean, it's it, you know, it, it basically usually, and this is way off, you know, what our listeners care about. But <laughs> g- generally, you would put a designation in front of the number. Mm-hmm. So if this was the Kentucky Fried Chicken case, I would say KFC. And then zero 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 one, and then each subsequent page would get another number, and that's exactly why you do it because you get this big pile of documents, and you want to quickly get to one, and you'd say KFC zero 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 four two, and they would know exactly where to find that. All right, makes sense. So that's the thing, and honestly, that's the kind of thing we considered adding in, but because we are screenwriters, we just didn't really know what the. Um, what people needed. And so we would have done a, a, probably a poor job of that and not met expectations. If you decide to do it, give me a call. I'll, I'll give right. you some feedback, but to tell you the truth, I'm not sure it's worth your time because yeah. most people do it in the Adobe application. It's just kind of a thing. Yeah. And, um, it, it's not like, like the way I use Bronson watermarker is if I want to put a big confidential stamp across a bunch of pages yeah. or something like that, like getting back to KFC, if I had the seven secret herbs and spices, I would, put the confidential stamp on that stuff with Bronson watermarker, which to me is different than the Bates stuff. It's a good time to talk about it because we're actually just now doing our new version of Bronson because of all the apps we have in the app store, we look at that one and it it makes us shudder a little bit because it looks very two years ago. And so we're going through and and redoing Bronson. So uh, um, you'll you'll have a new app pretty soon that will look much more like OS 10.10 rather than OS 10.8. So you know what t- OS ten point ten looks like already? Uh, no, I, we just have the, we have the, the common guesses of what ten point ten will look like, and I think we're making some relatively smart choices about where the puck is headed to. Yeah, it's it's just kind of become a thing the last couple months. Everybody uh, talking about it, and I think it's natural. You know, last year they had Johnny Ive focusing his time on iOS seven, and now I think he's gone over to the Mac, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot of those common themes coming over. I'm actually, and we don't talk too much about rumors on the show, but I'm actually really looking forward to see what they do with the Mac. Mm-hmm. I am too. There's clearly things that could be uh, freshened up and simplified in a way that actually makes them more powerful. And also just the market. I mean, I know so many people that back their way into a Mac. They get an iPhone or an iPad. And then, you know, like Windows 8, they look at Windows 8 and they're like, well, if I have to learn something new, I might as well learn the Mac. So I think uh, making the interface more similar to the iOS would be helpful. And that's at least in look. I don't want them to combine them. But just in terms of look and feel, I think it would be nice for people moving on to the Mac. I agree with you. Oh, and then, one, last, one last question really quick. Uh, why, why Bronson watermarker? What is the significance of Bronson? So um, all of our software, at least the, the original plan for all of our software, is named after streets in Hollywood. And so ah, uh, Bronson okay. is street in Hollywood. So Fountain is a, is a major uh, east-west way of getting across Hollywood. Highland is a major north-south way of getting across Hollywood. Bronson is a side street that connects to Fountain. Um, and so, yes, we have... We have code names for many future products that are based on street names in Hollywood. So we, we oh. don't have um, we don't always have products for them. And Weekend Read, which is our iOS app, originally we were going to give it one of those street names. And yet Weekend Read was so much better of a title for what that app was. We yeah. decided to go for that. Well, the ahead, other Katie. big project you do is you also do a podcast. I do. We have a podcast every week called Script Notes that Craig Mason and I do. It's a podcast quote about screenwriting and things that are interesting to screenwriters. And uh, it's been a, tr- a joy to do. It's 
one of those things where I'd been writing a blog for 10 years and enjoyed writing about screenwriting, but I was also sick of the monologue of a blog where it's just your voice. And so to really have a discussion, right. you need another person. And to have Craig on every week to talk through the issues has been great. And we've had amazing guests along the way, and we do a lot of live shows. So it's been a, a real pleasure to do. Well, I mean, you guys have been at it quite a while. You're at show 140 now. Yes. And, and uh, yeah, we've gotten a lot better about it. And I'm sure you guys too. It's Those first couple are bizarre because you're trying to figure out how to have a conversation over Skype and make it seem like you're in the same room. But you get better. Yeah, we, when we did our first show, it was on email. It was, I don't know, five years ago, Katie, something like that. Five years and three hours long. and ugh. Yeah, and we recorded the whole thing. Then we we finished it, and the next day, I think I called her. She called me and said, you know what? Let's just delete that and start over again. Yeah, there's and, some early episodes of ours that are deleted as well. Yeah, I, I almost wish I had it still just to <laughs> listen to it. it. I'm sure it was just terrible. I don't know if I have it. I'll have to look. It might be on my Drobo. Yeah, you know, I almost imagine you would, Katie Floyd. Yeah, blackmail material. I always keep it. <laughs> exactly. So, John, those are kind of, I think we hit the high points. I want to dive into each of those those areas in a, in a little more detail. Um, so maybe let's let's dig in with the writing, because that's, mm-hmm. that's probably your, your main gig, I would think. I, Absolutely. I know you've that's got what, so that, many. That keeps the lights on. Um, How so, does one get started with screenwriting? I mean, did you just always know that you wanted to be a screenwriter or that you wanted to work in Hollywood or... I always knew I wanted to be a writer. And so from an early age, I was writing. So even in third grade, I was writing short stories. Um, and I was a journalism major in college. This was, I went to school in Des Moines, Iowa. And I, this sounds incredibly naive, but I didn't really understand that movies were written. I Did you go to Drake? I went to Drake. Yeah, my family's yeah. from Iowa. Yeah. Oh, Drake is fantastic. And so I was a journalism major there. And I loved the school. I loved my program. Um, and yet I sensed that there was something more out there. And so... The first screenplay I ever got my hands on was uh, Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape um, because he made the movie and he wrote this journal that also had the full screenplay. And so I looked at the screenplay and I looked at the movie and said, oh, wow, everything they're saying in the movie, there's actually written here on the page, which seems incredibly naive. But this is before the Internet. This is back to the only sort of media I had access to in Des Moines, Iowa, was Premier Magazine once a month. And so I found out that there were film schools and that I could go to film school. And so I applied to and got into uh, USC for their producers program. And so I packed up my Honda, drove out. And so in 92, I started film school here. And I've been in Los Angeles ever since. So I wrote my first script while I was uh, there at USC. That eventually got me an agent. It got me hired for some jobs. And then Go was the first movie I was able to get made a few years later. It's funny, you know, when we were growing up, it really was like that. You just didn't know, have the access to the information mm-hmm. to so many things. It, it, you know, going to the bookstore to, you know, um, Walden Books and buying a magazine sometimes yeah. was the most current information you could get. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, even uh, on a technology level, I remember being so obsessed with getting my Macworld magazine so I could sort of find out what's happening. And then there was a weekly magazine, a weekly sort of news magazine for Macintosh that existed for a time while I was in college. And you had to be kind of a developer to get to get it. But I remember being, being obsessed about getting that thing because it, it had all the, the up-to-date kind of um, moments. I think Macalope may have actually been a column in there. So it was way back in those days. Yeah. And that, Ooh, that, that could be a hint yes. to the identity. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. But uh, it was, it was, you know, it was a really heady time and, Partly because there wasn't perfect information, it was kind of more exciting the little bits that you did get. Yeah. yeah. 
So how do how do I do you do people typically commission you for saying I want you know we want to write a screenplay about this or do ideas come to you and then you turn around and pitch them? How does that process get started? There are two basic ways that screenwriters work. One is writing on spec, which is basically you have an idea or you're just going off by yourself and writing something, and that is the way most writers get started. Is they just they have an idea, they write a script about that, and so Go was a script I wrote on spec. Uh, and then when it was finished, I took it I, with my agent. We took it to a bunch of places. One place bought it, and we went down the road of making a movie. The other way screenwriters are hired is as really a work for hire. They are commissioned to write a screenplay. So it could be based on something they pitched. It could be based on underlying material that the studio owns, like a book or a graphic novel or a remake of another film. Um, in those cases, uh, you are writing something for them. So they're paying you to start writing. They're paying you to deliver the draft. And there's a set contract for how many passes you have at the, the script. Um, in both cases, when you're actually writing for one of the studios, for one of these sort of bona fide studios, all that's covered underneath the Writers Guild of America, the, the, the guild, the, the union that oversees all the writers. And so there's a very set and prescribed way that some things have to be handled. Yeah, and that, and and I want to talk about the formatting in a minute because I think it would just make me crazy. But, um, but before we get to that part, when you decide to write a script, whether it's on spec or based on uh, on a commission or or an instruction from a studio, um, how do you go about doing it? I mean, do you just sit down and start writing, or do you outline and plan? Um, what are the steps involved? Yeah, there's no one way that writers approach things and really every project I've approached a little bit differently, but the classic ways uh, writers will approach it is there's some writers will use index cards. And so on each index card, you'll write basically a scene or a moment and you'll rearrange those moments on a table or on a big cork board to figure out how stuff works. Um, when we talk about structure in a movie, uh, movies are about two hours long. There's a sense that there's a beginning, a middle and an end. Uh, we call those acts and there's, sometimes way too much emphasis placed on sort of, you know, when in the course of a movie, those, these kind of events have to happen, but there's a general expectation that over the course of these two hours, these are the kinds of things that will happen in your movie. So that planning can take place on a cork board with index cards. A lot of times people will just use it, just write an outline. So it could be a one page outline. It could be a 12 page outline. James Cameron is notorious for writing these 75 page scriptments, which are basically an outline of everything except for the actual dialogue in the scene. There's lots of ways you can proceed. But generally, you want to have some game plan for what's going to happen in the movie before you start writing the individual scenes so you don't get lost. Other so times, how, other times how, you're able to start writing, but it's generally not the safest way to start. Yeah, it seems like that would be a bad idea. At least I know for me it would be. I'm a uh... I accepted a long time ago that I'm not very smart and I need to like do a lot of planning if I'm ever going to make anything worth anything. <laughs> so I, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I've had so much success with Max Sparky. Cause I can explain all these obsessive things I do, which is just an acknowledgement of my incapacity to like do things quickly. Um, but I think that's probably too much information. <laughs> well, recently what I've, I've, what I've taken to doing and it's just every, every movie is a little bit different, but this last thing I wrote, I ended up using Workflowy, which is a, a great online um, outliner, sort of like a to-do list manager, but it also works really well as a um, as just a, a plain old outliner. I'll yeah. use that. I have it in an instance of Chrome, so it's, it's its own little happy kind of thing. 
And that's been a joy to use because I can go through there and uh, rearrange stuff and then cross out things as I get stuff written. And that's um, part of the joy is being able to sort of check things off your list. And that's also nice because it's cloud-based, so you can access it from different platforms. Absolutely. So my main computer is that I'm talking to you about right now is um, uh, I have a 30-inch monitor. It's hooked up to a, a pretty old actual little MacBook underneath the desk. Um, but it's been my setup for a long time. So I used to have a giant Mac Pro here, and that got outdated. So it still seems to me like the same computer because it has this big monitor, but it's actually just a tiny little box underneath the desk right now. And then I use my MacBook um my little 13-inch MacBook Air as my travel computer. And when I was in New York all last year to do Big Fish, that was my only computer, and it worked out really well. And how do you yeah. keep everything synced up between the two? Is it just Dropbox or another kind of service, or do you it's, manually it's, move over? I'm entirely Dropbox, and it's very yeah. hard to imagine my work and my life right now without Dropbox. And I would say that it's probably the same for every screenwriter I know, is that all of my active projects I keep in Dropbox, the podcast I keep in Dropbox, all that stuff is there, and then I share those folders with the people I need. So each week as we record a podcast, uh, Craig Mason and I will put our files in the same Dropbox folder. Matthew Cilelli, who edits the podcast, will go through there and uh, grab the audio and, and make a new one, put it all together, and uh, put it back there for us. So it, it's very hard to imagine what life would be like without Dropbox right now. Yeah. I know David Wayne was telling us about how he is such a big user of Google Docs yes. for writing and, and outlining and collaborating and things like that. Do you do you use any kind of collaborative um, brainstorming or outlining tools? You know, I, I love how David uses Google Docs because when they're writing their scripts for Children's Hospital, they'll all sort of sort of come in and gangbang and people write in different colors and they'll all be looking at the same document at the same time. Very rarely does the writing I need to do have that kind of situation? But we're really talking about that for future versions of Highland and other apps is what do people want when they say collaboration? Because collaboration can mean two people writing on the same document at the same time, or it can mean ability for people to pull up a document, add notes and things, and then the original author to accept what changes to make. And those are actually very different models. So we're still sorting through what the best of that is. But for working on our app projects, we're, we're sort of doing two things at once. I'm not sure which one's going to last and stick the longest. We use Slack, which is a great uh, sort of group chat messaging kind of thing, has channels. And so for all this stuff that we would normally do in little emails, we try to do those in Slack. We also use Basecamp for bigger, longer discussions about overall product features. And so we have Basecamp projects set up for each of our major apps. And if there's things that I want to talk about or like areas to explore, we'll create new topics in there. So that becomes our collaboration for apps. I have recently become a Basecamp subscriber, and I'm mm -hmm. using it both in the geek half of my life and the legal half of my life. And I just, just have more respect for that every time I use it. I think they've done a really good job of making it useful. Yeah, it, I, Basecamp really is, I think, a terrific project. What I like so much about Slack is that it is very much like those quick one-off messages. And so it's much, it's terrific on mobile um, and has really great integrations for things like Twitter. So for instance, um, our company, quote unquote apps, our, our Twitter is just Q apps. And whenever somebody tweets at us for Q apps, that'll automatically push to, to Slack. And so we'll get a notification there. And we can see like, okay, this person said something. And then if we respond back to that person, that will also show up in the thread that we responded back. So we can all see 
what the status is of those kind of messages. You know, backing up to the collaboration thing, I'm really fascinated by that subject because for so long, collaboration with writing only meant one thing. It meant track changes, that Mm -hmm. you have a document and then you send it to somebody else and they make changes to it. And you had various degrees of functionality in these applications to to track what you change. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I think Google Documents was the first one to really kind of change the paradigm to where you would collaboratively work on a document at the same time. Um, I'm not sure that's the solution for everyone. And and thus far, I think Google's the only company that's really done it well. Yeah. I mean, Apple, Apple is kind of trying with iCloud and Microsoft is trying with the Office Online product. But the only one I've seen where it really worked really well was Google Documents. But that problem is getting solved and and this online collaboration is going to be available to other people. And then you combine that with this move towards these simple text files. Mm-hmm. And Fountain really is a simple text format. It's a, right? as simple as you can get. It is yeah. it's like Markdown in, in that everything you could you could write Markdown in uh, any text editor. You could the same thing with Fountain. You could write it in an email. You could write it on, you know, anything that can generate ASCII could probably generate a, a good Fountain file. And, and there's a ton of reasons why that is the superior way of doing things. I mean, I wrote a whole book on Markdown, so mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I, I really think it's a great idea. But it doesn't give you the metadata or the ability to track changes or to collaborate realistically on that file. And I know there's a lot of really smart people talking about this now. And I'm, I can't wait to see what you guys come up with because I, I just think that's kind of the next big thing we need to solve with these text files is collaboration. Well, here, I'll push back a little bit about the collaboration of it all because David Wayne using Google Docs to do his scripts, that is essentially really doing that same thing. It's using the cloud to take care of the uh, making, making tra- keeping track of changes and stuff. But the underlying document you would ever pull out of it is still going to be a pure fountain document. So it's still going to be that basic level. So I would argue that sometimes the things we expect have to be part of the file itself are better handled by cloudy kind of services, you know, something hidden behind the curtain. And so the file itself, the file that you could actually see is cleaner, is more neutral, is is less that. But I agree with you that in the flat sense of, of, a fountain file or a markdown file, uh, it can be a little bit more challenging. We have a built-in way of handling notes, for example, in fountain that doesn't exist in uh, markdown, which I think is we found to be very useful. So anything in a fountain file that you, couple, you keep in double brackets is not printed, is not part of it. We have a, a boneyard function, which is very much like commenting out something in uh, classic coding. So yeah. we, I think when we first started talking about doing fountain, and this is Many years ago, when I had a format called Scripits, which was just for putting little bits of screenplay in blogs, I wrote to John Gruber. It's how I actually first got to know him, saying, like, this is the kind of thing we're thinking about doing. You did Markdown. And ultimately, like, what would you do differently? And I think there's, there were great lessons to learn from things he thought worked terrifically in Markdown, or if he had to go back and do some things differently, some th- lessons he would have learned. And so things like our way of handling comments, things like our way of um, dealing with some of the metadata that's just natural, uh, it has really come from how much we've sort of learned about what plain text can do well since that time. Yeah, and in fairness to John, I think when he created Markdown, he created it for a very particular purpose. Yes. And it did exactly what he needed it to do. And I think 
I can't imagine he had any idea that it was going to take on a life of its own. Absolutely. And so I think one of the things we were able to, so as we were coming to, to, to figure out um, a format for, for plain text screenwriting, I sort of had uh, my idea of what it would be. Stu Maskowitz was independently working on what he thought it could be. We recognized that they were very similar in many ways. We combined them, that became Fountain. But I think we both could recognize that it the, the the best thing you could do is make sure that it allowed for future innovation. And so even since the time we published the spec, we came out with a 1.1 that recognized some of the challenges that, that we presented for ourselves. For example, we require that uh, we look for character names to be in uppercase. So you can figure out like what's a character name versus what's dialogue. The challenge yeah. is what if, happens if you have a character's name in Chinese. Like, well, that's a, there's no such thing as uppercase. And so we had to create a meta character for showing like this really is a character. And so all those edge cases became part of the spec itself. Now, are you getting feedback from the industry on this? I mean, are other people kind of picking it up and, and writing in? They are. And so we set up a glass board to talk you know, for anyone who was interested in developing for it to sort of talk through those issues. And that was, that's been active at times and dormant at times. But it's been nice to see that every month or two, there'll be a new fountain editor, a new fountain utility showing up out there that can do stuff. And because it's plain text, we are so Mac biased, but we want to make sure that people can do it in other platforms. And so you'll see web-based versions, you'll see Linux-based versions, uh, you know, Windows versions, Android versions that can do, that can provide ways to deal with fountain documents on those platforms as well. Now, I want to back up just a little bit for the audience, and because we talked about this at some length on the David Wayne episode, but the, there is a very accepted script writing format in Hollywood, mm -hmm. or just in the film industry, I guess I should say. And everything is done in, I forget, what's the name of the application that everybody uses? Final Draft. Yeah, Final, Final Draft is the most common yeah. application, yeah. And and so it's it's very set. And I think a lot of this stuff goes back to what kinds of typewriters they kept in offices like 50 years ago or something, because like the the typography has to be courier. And, you know, there's certain there's certain context to this. And if you don't submit a script in, you know, with this format, it's like the secret handshake. It's showing that you really don't know what the heck you're doing. Is that a fair statement? It is. But I think some things are getting conflated there that I want to pull apart a little bit. So okay. when we talk about the format, uh, there's file format and then there's actually the layout of the words on the page. And I would say the layout of the words on the page has actually been pretty consistent for the past 30 years. And um, that is, it looks like it's typed with a typewriter. So you're using 12 point courier um, and dialogue is, is a certain number of spaces in there's a certain way that things look on the page. And that's actually been fairly standard. That doesn't mean it's necessarily the best way. It's not necessarily the way we would do it right now. But it was a way that has made sense, and it's a way that everyone's used to seeing it. So just like you're probably used to seeing certain kinds of legal briefs written a certain way, or you're used to seeing court opinions a certain way, it'd be really weird if it weren't suddenly that way. Yeah, and, and the advantage of it is even if you're not happy with exactly how it's done, everybody knows where to look to see certain elements. Absolutely. And there's, you can set some expectations about what stuff is. Um, so that's the layout. The, in terms of format, in terms of the applications, uh, Final Draft was has for you know a good 10 years been the dominant application for writing screenplays it's been the, sort of the I, I hate to say standard but it's been the one that people have sort of begrudgingly put up with at times um, for being the one that you're going to use to write stuff in and it's very much a an 
old school application and that it feels like word from 10 years ago and everything in there essentially has style sheets built in so if you want to make a character name uh you have to hit the command key that takes you to character name and then you hit the command key that takes you to dialogue and there's a lot of esoterica to it i mean some stuff is a little bit more automated but it's not it doesn't it's not doing a lot of stuff for you um and so the hope was that in creating fountain which is a plain text format you wouldn't have to think about any of that because um the fountain interpreters themselves would know well that's obviously a character name that's obviously dialogue that's a transition and we would just built it in we would handle it for you when it was time to handle it and yeah. and it's working it's working well and it's so we have highland which is our app for it uh slugline is another common one but even scrivener which is you know sort of multi-purpose app um have built-in things and there's been uh additions to editorially on the um ipad to handle fountain as well so it's i think because it is like markdown enough anyone who's built something that can use markdown can build something that can use fountain as well yeah, and and really, app developers are looking for an edge, and you know there's so many applications out there. So when a new format starts to get any kind of legs, they're going to adopt it and bring it in because they want to be the guy that has you know fountain in their application. Absolutely, and so that's why on GitHub we have the fountain libraries there. We we try to provide a lot of stuff so that someone who wants to build that into their app finds it actually fairly easy to do. I mean, ultimately, just like Markdown, it's a bunch of regular expressions that are recognizing what's on the page and applying formatting to it. What kind of recognition are you getting in, in the movie industry um, for, for creating this? I mean, are, are people coming up to you and saying, why are you messing things up? Or are they really excited about it? What's the, um, uh, the people at final draft are not necessarily the, our biggest fans. Um, they came out yeah, with the podcast and uh, uh, we're, we're not, they're actually, they were less happy about us talking about final draft in a negative sense or, pointing out the deficiencies of Final Draft more than Fountain itself. Because honestly, they could add Fountain in about three days and it would be very helpful to a lot of people. Uh, I would honestly say, though, one of the interesting things is that most of the people I write for, most of the studios I work for, the producers I work with, really have no idea that I also develop these other apps because it's not on sort of their daily radar. They're really just thinking of me as the writer, which is fine. And so it's screenwriters who are the ones who understand that these are different ways, different tools they can have to do stuff. The one thing I actually do enjoy the most is we talked about courier being the standard typeface. Uh, the standard courier is really ugly. It just doesn't look really good. And uh, so I wanted a better courier. So I commissioned a font we called Courier Prime that is a much better looking courier, especially for screenplays. And uh, that's been widely adopted. And so it's been nice to, to open up a script. It's like, oh, that, that's my typeface uh, that they're using there. And <laughs> recognizing the small little changes we've made that make that look better on the page. Yeah, I had no idea you were behind that as well. You're a busy guy. I'm a busy guy. I, I, do, I work on a lot of projects, and uh, uh, I, uh, I, don't, I don't stop. So. Yeah, well, you know, like, like you, I write a lot of legal briefs in Markdown. And like you, the judge doesn't know that oh. because when he sees it, it's, it's a document that's gone through Word and has the right formatting and all those things on it. Um, I, I guess so the question I was asking those from other writers, I guess, are are they excited about the ability to use something like a plain text system? I think it depends on what their expectations are. And a lot of newer, younger writers have grown up in a time of markdown and a time of simple text editors. So they don't believe that they have to pay, you know, 
you know, $200 for a fancy piece of software to do this one specific esoteric thing. So I think it depends on what the background is of the people who are writing. And especially someone who comes from a coding background, it's really natural to be doing your writing in something that's very plain text. Honestly, anybody who comes from a web background, because uh, anybody who's built websites is very much used to looking at, here's the raw text and there's the formatted text. And that's natural to them versus I think a lot of people of our generation, we grew up, I mean, the first, I remember getting my first Macintosh and, you know, opening Mac, Write And being so excited that I could write in these fonts and like really wanted to change the fonts while I was writing, which of course is never a good idea. You can end oh, up yeah. spending I, so I much did time. some real terrible stuff back then. <laughs> yeah. You can spend so much time figuring out the right font that you've, you've spent 20 minutes not writing and uh, plain text is great about just getting you writing. What was the font? It was like a ransom note. I forget what it was. That was San, San Francisco. Francisco. Yeah. 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 San Francisco. Oh, man. So good. I, I did some real terrible stuff with, I, I think I turned in like papers with like, you know, San Francisco font used a lot. Yeah. And then of course, when the laser, the first laser writers came out and everything was in zap chancery for a while. And that was a, a, a dark, dark time. It was, it was, but, but it is exciting. And I think one of the reasons why this text thing has taken off is partly because of iOS and people want to be able to do this stuff on the iPad in mm-hmm. particular in my case, but you know, the iPhone as well. And, and iOS has never really done a very good job of supporting rich text and a lot of formatting. So I think that was one more kick in the pants for, for Markdown and, and Fountain as well. Yeah. I think also the youngest people are very used to like typing a lot on their phones. And so, they don't need to see all those fonts and those things. You can give them plain text as long as you give them their emoji. They're happy. So it's a, a different set of expectations. Yeah. Well, John, I want to talk a little bit more about your actual writing workflow in terms of how you sit down to write and, and all of that. But before we do, I do want to take a quick break and talk about our first sponsor, our exclusive sponsor for this episode. Um, and that is our good friends over at Smile. So... David, you want to tell us about uh, PDF Pen for Mac? Oh, absolutely. Uh, speaking about um, the day job, we were talking about using uh, Adobe. You know what? I don't really use it very much because my favorite application is PDF Pen Pro for dealing with PDF documents. Uh, PDF Pen Pro, and I'm going to focus on that one today because they have PDF Pen Standard and PDF Pen Pro. It gives you some really great features if you need uh, power usage of your PDF uh, applications. It does a lot that... Um, that's just not possible with any other application because they're on all the Apple platforms. The first thing you can do is you can store your PDFs right in the iCloud. So when I get a new PDF document, I will save it to iCloud and PDF Pin Pro. And then when I go over to my iPad, it just shows up right there. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to push any sync buttons. It's just flawless, easy syncing. Uh, another thing I really like about PDF Pin Pro is the ability to make interactive PDF forms. You know when someone sends you a form they want you to fill in, but they haven't taken the trouble to actually turn it into a PDF form? Uh, in PDF Pin, you can just push a button, and it will go through, and it'll find the blank lines in inner text fields. It'll find the little circles and squares in inner checkboxes. It will turn a... a Doc, a form document into an actual PDF form. You can also create the PDF forms themselves in PDF Pin Pro if you want. So if you want to create it and send it to somebody else and not give them that trouble. 
Uh, but one of my favorite features is the ability to take an existing PDF document and turn it into a Word document. So as a lawyer, there's a, this trick lawyers do all the time where you're working on a contract and they send it to you in PDF format. And you're supposed to be able to make changes, but in order to do that, you have to print it out and you have to print changes on with your pencil or you have to interlineate with annotations in the PDF application, a much easier way to do those things would be to have it in Word format where you can track changes like we were talking about. Well, in PDF Pen, and this works in both versions, you can just push a button and it will send that PDF out and return it to you as a Word document. And it's scary how good a job they do is turn that into a Word document. So I it's another feature I use all the time with PDF Pen. Uh, so PDF Pen on my Mac is, is just the solution to go to to solve your PDF problems. They've got some great uh, solutions. If you go to the website, they've got some videos you can watch, and I recommend doing that. Um, another feature they have is the ability to change text in a PDF. So if you have a little mistake in a PDF file, you can go in, select the text field. Even though it appears locked, you can unlock it, and then you can change text in it and then save it out. It's a great application. Go check it out. You can find it at smilesoftware.com slash pdfpen or slash pdfpenpro. Uh, and thanks, Smile, for supporting the show. So John, I'm curious when when you sit down to write and you've got all the brainstorming done and and you're and maybe it's never done, but when you're ready to write, um, do you sit down at your Mac and do you um, type directly into? I'm I'm assuming you use your product. Do you do you type directly into Highland or um, do you type in other you know kind of any other uh, text editor or, or application and then bring it into Highland after the fact? What is your process and and how do you how do you get words on the page? Yeah, my process for working on an individual scene is generally sitting someplace that's not at my computer and sort of looping the head of my scene, uh, looping the scene in my head, which is basically uh, it's visualizing what is going to happen in the scene. And you start to kind of very roughly block out the characters that are there, uh, what's happening around them, who starts saying what, and you just kind of keep it circling back through and back and through. And, th and eventually you start to hear the characters speaking with each other. And you start to figure out Okay, these are okay. This is what's going on. This is the the shape of it, and eventually it's like, okay, I got, it. I got, I understand what the scene is, and then I need to very quickly get that out of my head and just do a scribble version of it. And so sometimes I'm literally just scribbling notes down on a piece of paper. Um, like field notes work great for that, but also I'll just take like a normal eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper, fold it four times, and write very quickly in small handwriting what happens in that scene. Largely the dialogue, but really what the meat of that scene is. Other times I'll just go straight to Highland and just bang out the very quick version of that. And like, these are the things that happen in it. It's so important to me to get that out of my head before I start trying to polish it and figure, I don't want to make it perfect. I just want to get it out of my head. Um, and then it's a matter of going through and making that scene uh, read the best way it can, which is making sure I'm coming in at the right moments, making sure that I've made it as tight as it can be and yet still feel real. Um, the child... Yes. I really like, can I just interrupt there for a second? I really like that you look at that as two different processes. The first is just getting something in, and then the second is polishing. I think that's true no matter what kind of writing you're doing. Uh, getting hung up on trying to make it right with the first input is something that writers make a mistake on. And and if you'll just let yourself get in that you know bad first draft, that's okay. Yeah, getting that thing out of my head is really crucial too because I find that if I – obsessed too much about like that one line before I've gotten the rest of it down, I may have forgotten everything else that I wanted to have down. So it's important just to make, you know, 
the lucky thing about scenes is a scene is not that long. A, a very long scene is three pages long, um, which in scribble form is only maybe 20 or 30 lines that you're getting down on the page. So get those down, get those out of your head quickly and then really work on the exacting work of trying to get it just right. It's like sort of, if you were a painter, it's like sort of putting in the big fields of color before you do the little detail work. Because uh, both aspects are really important. But if you try to work on the details before you have the overall shape of it, you're probably going to write something that no longer fits the overall need of the scene. Uh, and then for a screenplay, a screenplay is about 120 pages long. Uh, you're doing that, you know, 80 times probably uh, to write a movie. And that's why movies are take a long time to write. And do, how do you choose when to write what? Is it just what – I'm, I'm assuming that yeah. you don't just necessarily go from, you know, opening credits to end credits straight in order. Is it just kind of what mood you're in or, or what strikes you at that time? Or uh, Luckily, if you have a good outline, I found I, I'm able to hop around in the script and really – write what strikes me as most interesting that day. It's a good way to sort of keep yourself um, from procrastinating because a lot of times procrastination is like, I don't really know how to do that scene. I just don't feel, I, I, don't, I don't get what's supposed to happen there. And so if there's probably some other scene in this movie that I can write now, sometimes it's a lot simpler things. There's going to be those really incredibly meaty, important scenes that you are going to have to be perfect. There's other scenes which are kind of people walking through doors and it doesn't matter so much that it'd be the best scene in the entire universe. So sometimes I'll pick those low-hanging fruits if I don't have the strength, the energy, the, the will to uh, write a bigger thing. And but, sometimes it just needs to cook in your subconscious mind a little bit longer. I, I found for things like that where I feel like I'm just not ready to write that part yet. Yeah. And maybe in a week it just comes to me naturally. The other thing I try to do overall in the process is those – First, you know, 10, 15 pages are incredibly important in terms of setting the world of your movie, the tone of your movie, the characters of your movie. And so you need to write those early on so you have a sense of, of what the movie is you're trying to tell. But those last 10 pages, 15 pages, are also really important. So early in the process, I will try to get those written, knowing that they may change based on other things I've learned over the course of the movie. But getting those done is also important because... Many times I have written a little bit more straight from the beginning to the end, and it's like you know every midterm paper you wrote in college, like you were really strong there at the start, but then you were jamming to get those last few pages done, um, you know, right before deadline. And sometimes your writing just isn't as strong at the end because you were rushing. And so I want to make sure the end of the movie is not written in that rush form. Yeah. Now we haven't talked about iOS at all in this process. Do you, I mean, I'm assuming that you use an iPhone or an iPad, but do you use it at all in this process for writing or brainstorming or actually getting words on a page? You know, I don't do a lot of writing per se on either the iPhone or the iPad. Um, for some of my, my blog writing, I will write uh, first drafts of that in ByWord on the iPad because I, I, I'll have that on the uh, treadmill and I'll, I'll be working through early drafts of that, but that's really for bloggy kind of stuff. What I do find myself using on the iPhone for writing is I'll keep lists of things in Vesper. And so I'll have a list of like a casting list for this character in this thing I'm writing. I'll keep that kind of stuff in Vesper. Those quick and dirty notes I, I like to keep on the iPhone. Um, where I, the, the, the other app that we make, uh, which has been incredibly useful for the iPhone, is Weekend Read. And 
we can read is for reading screenplays or other long documents on the iPhone because a lot of times I'll need to read a script, um, either a friend's script or my own script. Or I need to look something up. And the iPhone is wonderful on so many levels, but it's really challenging to read a screenplay on it because the margins of a screenplay are just not set up for such a small thing. You end up pinching and zooming all the time. Yeah, is there a lot of white space on either side? Absolutely. So dialogue traditionally is, you know, in a little gutter in the middle of, of the page. And so if you look at a PDF of a screenplay on the iPhone, it's a disaster. And you're always pinching to try to read stuff. So we took basically the, um, one of the things that our, our Mac app Highland does is you can throw a, a PDF at it. It's sort of like you're, what you were saying with, with Smile Software's PDF um, utility. Uh, you can throw a PDF at it and it will melt it down to fountain. And so we took that same engine and put it into an iPhone app called Weekend Read. And so if you open up a PDF in Weekend Read, it will strip out all the text and reflow it in a way that looks really good on the iPhone. And so I use my iPhone for reading scripts a lot now, and that's been a joy. So uh, that's, you know, the other thing I end up doing weirdly now on the iPhone a lot is reading scripts because I always have my iPhone with me. So if I have an extra 10 minutes, I can actually read a friend's script um, there at the doctor's office. That's pretty impressive. So is it is it doing the OCR as well, or is it just, it, it, does the document have to have OCR in it before it'll Yeah, so it this is really for things that are, um, most screenplay PDFs are generated directly from the application, so they're not scanned in. So if yeah. it was a scan script that had OCR, you'd do a pretty good job with it. But most cases, it's taking a PDF that someone printed to PDF, and that is the one that we're melting down. So Yeah, because the applications will... will embed the accurate text if it, it comes right off the app yeah so we can read if, if people want to check it out it's a free app that's in the um that's just in the app store and it's been very useful for um getting that stuff happening and david wayne uh was one of the early testers of that gave us a, a great quote and i think uh this next week we'll have all of we'll have a bunch of his scripts from children's hospital will be uh, on there as well for people to look at oh really yeah nice i love that's that fun. show <laughs> Okay, I'm going off on a tangent, Katie. Oh boy. Um, so the uh, so let's get let's talk a little bit about app development because that that is kind of you know I I didn't realize appreciate uh, how how big this business was for you. I mean, you guys have multiple applications. Sounds like you have some in development as well. Uh, as someone who didn't grow up in the app development you know world, what are the big lessons you've learned uh, getting into this business? No. App development is actually weirdly a lot like directing a movie. And so I, I had a lot of the same project skills you have when you're directing a movie are um, similar for building applications, is that you have to have a vision of, of what the app overall is going to be, what it's going to be like when it's finished. And then you need to bring in good people to help you get to that place. And so the people I have working for me, uh, Ryan Nelson, who is our designer, he's worked with me for about three years now. And so he does the mock-ups and does the, the how everything looks. And so he and I will iterate a lot, um, generally working off of, um, he's a Photoshop master. So generally we'll build stuff out in Photoshop and figure out how stuff looks first. And then Mima Yousefi is our coder. And then we'll go with him and we'll figure out the functionality and sort of like what looks good on Photoshop versus what we can actually do on a real screen and sort of ping pong back and forth between that. Um, a lot of times it's uh, it's just constant iteration. It's figuring out like, this is what we're trying to do. How do we make this simpler? How do we make this more clear What from a user's point of view, what this is supposed to be? And then because most of the stuff we build 
is really designed for screenwriting, I'm sort of always dogfooding it. I'm always using it. And so Highland has gotten a lot better over the years because I use Highland all the time. It's my, I write my scripts in it. So yeah, if there's so something you, that annoys you me, you see where it breaks. If there's something, you know, if it crashes, then I yell at Nima. Um, but if there's something that is frustrating for me, um, we figure out a way to build it in. An example would be because screenplays are so long. Uh, if you're, if I'm deep into a document, if I'm like 70 pages into a 120 page document and I need to look back at something earlier on, it's very easy to lose my place. And so we built this thing called a marker into it, which is just, you, drop, you hit you know, uh, uh, control M and it drops a marker. And then wherever you scroll back to, you can find whatever you're looking for. Control option M will take you back to wherever that marker was. It's just a quick jumping back and forth, which you wouldn't need in shorter documents, but it's incredibly important in these long documents. And so that kind of stuff, that iteration has been really important. I think John Gruber was the first person I had heard describe making an app like a film. Like I think he calls himself Vesper's director. Yeah. And, and that, I think that analogy really holds up. And, and I also think that it's interesting when you see people who don't have app development background getting involved in it, because really there's two courses it can take. I mean, you've, you've gone kind of the, the way of light. I mean, you've got a designer and a coder and you have a vision there's so many people out there. I bump into these people. I live in Orange County, so we're full of uh, pompous jerks. Uh, you know, it's, it's part of our where we live. And I bump into these people who say, oh, you're a Mac guy. Well, I have an app. And you hear their story where they spent ten grand to hire somebody in some faraway place to make an app mm-hmm. that's, that they don't have any idea how it works. They don't even really care, and they don't understand why it's not making them any money. Yeah. And uh, no, that's it's, it's a real challenge. And I, I mean – the reason why a lot of apps don't make money is because it's actually really hard to make money as an app. And so I, I should stress that like I build apps because I, I want to build apps, but if it had to come down to dollars and cents, uh, it's not a lucrative way for me to be spending my, my time to do it, but I'd love the apps that we're able to make. Uh, the, the challenge I found is, um, uh, you know, when I say director, I'm also sort of the writer behind a lot of these things. And so much of, creating an app is is really writing the app, which is writing sort of what it's supposed to do, why somebody should buy it. I spent a lot of time on the copy on the app store. Um, if I didn't have the blog, it'd be very hard to talk about the app in a meaningful way. So if we, we, we could have made exactly the same app, but if we didn't have sort of our platform to release it into the world, I don't know that they would sell nearly as well. No, yeah, and, and, and an app tells a story. Yes. I think a good one does. Yeah. So, and we spent a lot of time really focusing on some very small little details, like exactly what color maroon this background is. Um, and we are always very mindful of what's going on in the marketplace around us. I think so often it takes so long to make it an app that by the time it's out there in the app store, the world has sort of moved on. And Bronson Watermark, I think, is a great case where, like, of all of our apps, it feels incredibly dated. It feels like it's from two years ago, and that's why we need to go through and clean it up. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. Well, that, that is exciting though, um, to be involved in it. And I'm sure it must feel good to open your iPhone or your iPad or your Mac and see something that you had a hand in creating and hearing about how people all over the world are using that to, to create stuff. No, it's, it's been great. What do you, if somebody has an app idea or if somebody, you know, David talks about the guy who spent ten or $20,000 to go somebody else go off and, and build their app for them. But 
what is, you know, so many people say, oh, I've got an idea for the next great app or, or boy, I really wish I had an app that, that did this, but, but maybe don't have that pure coding background or don't have the time to, to go learn Xcode and, and learn how to, you know, build this app off themselves. You know, it sounds like you've put together apps that have really filled a need for you and for a lot of other people, um, and, and put together this really collaborative team to do it. Uh, would you suggest, would you recommend that model for others or how, how could others who want to do similar things get started with this? I, I suspect there are good ways to collaborate with um, people who have skills, but that's don't necessarily have a vision and for, uh, for what it is they're trying to do. And like Nimi Youssef is a terrific coder, but when I found him, he was in graduate school uh, for uh, biology and he clearly kind of should be a programmer, but he was doing this other thing. And so it was, me working with him to get these early apps together, then ultimately hiring him on full time. Um, uh, you know, a split commission can be a really good way of working with um, a younger coder. Is basically let's work on this thing together, and if in success, let's split it fifty fifty or whatever division makes sense. As long as you, as the other creator, really can prove that you're doing the work you need to be doing to sort of get that app out there in the world. Um, design is crucial too. It's it's tough because honestly, the idea for an app is about kind of ten percent of the of what it takes to actually have a great app. So much of it is execution, and so much of it is um, iteration and just and figuring out exactly what it is you need to do, what you've done wrong that you didn't realize you did wrong. Um, the other thing I would say, talking to other people who have sometimes pretty good ideas for apps, is they'll have no sense of what's easy and what's difficult, and by reading, you know, by reading other tech trades, by figuring out, by talking to programmers, by listening to things like Marco Arment's podcast or other people who are building apps, you start to recognize that there are certain things that are actually remarkably easy to do. And then there's certain things which are remarkably hard to do. And sometimes people will describe these apps to me. as like, yes, that would be a great, easy app for Google to make. But like an individual would not be able to make that or it certainly would not be able to make that and make that at all profitable. Because what you're talking about is, it's going to have a web component. It's going to have this iOS thing. And you think you're also going to have an Android app. And uh, you have to really scale down uh, what is the, um, and I hate the, that term minimal, minimum viable product, but like what is the core of this product that is actually going to be good and useful to somebody? Like Bronson Watermarker is a, is a product that's sort of stripped down to its core. And it's not trying to do anything beyond what it actually says that it's doing in, in its name. Uh, and that's, a challenging thing to understand unless you really kind of read and explore what's going on around you. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to make an app that has a hundred thousand dollars worth of infrastructure behind it that you can, you know, sell 20 copies of for $5. Another thing I find sometimes people will have an idea for an app and they've clearly never actually gone to the app store to see what else is out there that can answer that, uh, that need. And so uh, I had a frustration where I had this old photo of myself, from Africa that I wanted to put up as a throwback Thursday. And the problem was it was so old, it didn't have any geo information, but I really wanted on Instagram for it to show where in Malawi this photo was taken. And so I found it incredibly difficult to find an app that would let me just change the geotag information. And I finally found one, but it was frustrating. And it's like, well, there should be an iOS app for that. And like, Nemo, we're going to make an iOS app for that. And I said, but first, let me actually do a good search of the app store and see if that app exists. And of course, there was one. There was a one that was actually great that did exactly what we needed to do. And so you can look at that and be frustrated saying like, 
oh crap, like that's an app we could have made. You can also look at it and say like, well, there's an app we don't need to make. Phew. Yeah. Like, you know, that, that it's, it's, it's already out there in the universe. That itch is scratched. Although yes. I, I think Apple could do a better job of making it easier for you to find it. The, the sad thing is sometimes the app is there and you don't find it. And yeah. uh, I well, know they're working on that. Yeah. A lot of times that, that app is out there, but it's buried beneath, you know, 15 other apps that haven't been updated in years that are terrible. And that is a real challenge. Well, we could do a whole podcast on problems with the App Store and finding and curating apps and what are good apps versus copycat apps versus, you know, truly unique products. But we'd run out of time pretty quickly <laughs> yes. if we went there. Um, let's talk a little bit uh, about the podcast that, that you do. I know you do a weekly podcast. And um, who, who is that podcast really geared for? I know it's it's about screenwriting, but you've got 140-plus episodes now. So, you, I mean – Tell us a little bit about what you talk about and who your target audience is. No, we discovered pretty early on, and I, Craig Mazin, who's my co-host, doesn't listen to any other podcasts, whereas I listen to a lot of other podcasts. Um, and I realized early on that a lot of times I'm listening to a podcast not only for what they're talking about, but because I enjoy the conversation with those people. It's like, you know, it's as if I'm in conversation with them, I'm just not talking. And so I, we try to make it a conversation about uh, things that are about writing, things that are about film, things that are about sort of the, the modern state of how stuff is working in Hollywood. And originally it was much more just screenwriters, I think, who were listening to us, people who were reading the blog, who sort of stumbled across the podcast. But it's been surprising that we have a lot of listeners now who basically have no intention of ever writing a screenplay and yet enjoy um, us talking about the stuff that we're talking about. And I think you guys have probably figured out over the course of your episodes is that in a weird way, it's very therapeutic to have a structured time each week to talk through the things that are on your mind and things that um, you sort of save up for that weekly conversation to, to really sort of dig into. It's also important, I think, to have a, a co-host who differs in opinions from you at times so you can actually really dig in and discuss some stuff. That's yeah. the episodes I enjoy most are those. Yeah, Katie and I pretty much agree on everything. We never have any disagreements. Coffee versus tea, Star Trek versus Star Wars. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. it is, you know, the other thing that's interesting when you put 140 shows out is there's no way to hide in 140 shows. Mm -mm. You really get to know John when yes. you listen to his podcast. I have the same experience when I meet people that listen to this show is – you know, they're like, you're exactly like I pictured you. And I said, of course I am, because you've listened to something like 300 hours mm -hmm. of me talking. There's no way for me to fake it yeah. uh, over that period. And I find that kind of therapeutic just to kind of let it out there once a week. I don't know. I enjoy it. And I get so much more out of the show than I put into it that it's it's really, really great. But the um, but that's impressive. I mean, so you guys have really built up a body of shows there. And, and it's kind of interesting as well, your monetization, you guys, because um, a lot of people, it's like the third rail mm -hmm. is charging for a podcast, but you guys have kind of done that in, in, in a unique way. Well, it's a little bit unusual for us because we're both coming at this from as successful screenwriters. It felt really strange for us to be doing sponsor reads. I think sponsors are great, so I, I, I don't want to say anything negative about sponsor reads, but it felt weird for us to sort of have to um, deal with the rigmarole of sponsor reads because I know... I'm sure on your side, it's not just that you have to do it during your podcast, but you have to figure out all that stuff about billing for all that. And like, we just didn't want to do it. Um, what's also unusual about our podcast is because you guys are talking about 
uh, Mac-related issues, but there's going to be uh, a diminishing, it's so much diminishing topicality. So if someone who wanted to go back 100 episodes and listen to one of your early shows, a lot of stuff would have changed from that time. You'd be talking about sort of how stuff was then, and a lot of the software you might be discussing might be out of date. Some things would be different. Our show is kind of very evergreen because we're talking about just general issues of writers. And so a lot of people wanted to go back and listen to those very early episodes. Um, and that was kind of costing us a lot of money in bandwidth because we, we would add a new subscriber and that person would download all 130 episodes of the show. And that was a, a huge cost. So we ended up creating an app um, that's really Libsyn's app that uh, lets you subscribe for $1.99 a month and get all those back episodes. And every once in a while, we'll have a bonus episode of something that's not really script notes but sort of like script notes. And so like when I host a panel, it'll be that kind of bonus audio. And people seem to dig it. We've had, you know, really surprisingly consistent subscriber growth in that premium channel. And uh, it's been nice to see. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Well, our show is a little like evergreen like that as well because we're we don't do news. So sure. we like we talked about Scrivener on episode I think like seven like five years ago and yeah. that that show still gets a lot of downloads because it's still relevant content but I totally get where you're coming from about the, the bandwidth cause it, it is crazy when someone comes in and downloads everything yeah and, and what, what's your recording setup um we almost all of our shows are over Skype and so Craig lives still in Los Angeles but well over a hill and so Rarely do we do a show live together. So it's it's honestly exactly the way that we're recording this episode where uh, I have my little, um, we have the exact same mics, ATAT, 2020s, whatever mics. Uh, I'm recording into GarageBand. He's recording into GarageBand. When we're done, we stick them in the same folder and edit them together. Uh, so it's, you know, we don't have a set time every week where we do it, but we just negotiate over the course of the week when we're going to do it. Um, sometimes we'll have live guests here. And so we've done recordings here at my office. Uh, we do a fair number of live shows, which has been great. So our next one on uh, May 15th is at a, you know, we'll have 500 people and that'll be great. And those are really and fun. What's too. the subject for that one? Uh, that is the superhero spectacular. So we're going to have the writers of Captain America and Superman and Batman all on stage together to talk through huh? the, those challenges. We also do a thing wow. called a three page challenge where we have um, our listeners will send in the first three pages of their script and then we'll pick a couple of those and we'll go through and critique the first three pages of their script. And in this case, those people will be in the audience. So they will come up on stage and we can interact directly with them about the things they wrote. What a great podcast you guys have. Well, thank I'm you. Gonna, I'm going to subscribe. Thank I'm, you. It just sounds interesting to me. I, I've heard about it, but I, I hadn't listened to any yet. But how fun. It's been strange when there's been those moments of crossover. So um, when we had the final draft episode happen, uh, some of the other tech podcasts linked to us or started discussing us because it was such an interesting example of what happens when the dominant uh, player in a, a software market seems to have fossilized and becomes very defensive. Uh, what is that like? And it was sort of a classic example of of that. Uh, Final Draft is sort of the quark of um of screening software and is very much in danger of being disrupted. Well, I was listening to the accidental tech podcast cover that and John Syracuse, who I just, I think the guy's awesome to begin with, but his critique of 
their comments on your show, I thought were just spot on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where every software developer cringes a little bit um, to, uh, to both recognize their own behaviors in, in what was happening there. Um, but also, man, just don't say that. Don't just stop, stop talking. So yeah, it, it was, it was, it was fascinating and really uncomfortable. And that's what I think an interesting thing too, is that I think there's an expectation with podcasts that podcasts should be comfortable is that you, you tune into them because you're expecting to have essentially the same kind of conversation each week. So every once in a while, when that final draft thing got contentious, uh, that is uh, special. And so it's, yeah. it's a break from the normal pattern. Well, uh, it, it is, it's really impressive that you're doing all these things, app development, podcasting, writing movies. I mean, so what do you do with your free time? <laughs> with, with my free time? <laughs> um, I've been playing, uh, I play some games. I have an eight year old daughter. So I try to keep my work life from 9am to 6pm Monday through Friday. Largely I can do that. Um, sometimes there's reading or other stuff I have to do after that time. But um, I, I try to keep those, those two areas of my life close, but separate. And so I can actually be a good dad during those other times. Um, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It is really a challenge. I, I want to talk about some of these other apps that you play with, but before we do that, let's do our last uh, read for PDF pin, uh, PDF pin for iOS. Katie, did you want to share something about that? Yeah. You know, PDF pen is now an entire family of apps. It's not really just any one app. We know we've got PDF pen for Mac, PDF pen pro for Mac. We've got PDF pen for iPhone, PDF pen for iPad. Um, but we also have a fairly new member of the family and that is PDF pen scan plus. <laughs> and what PDF pen scan plus does is it allows you to scan, uh, either their single or multi-page documents, articles, receipts, really anything, uh, using the camera on your iPhone or your iPad. And we've got really great cameras now on the iPhone or iPad um, that, that we can get very high quality images. And uh, that's had some updates recently that has brought some really nice features. So if, for now, it will automatically detect the edges of whatever it is you're trying to scan. I'm going to use a receipt, for example, because that's one of my favorite uses for it. It will auto detect the edges. Uh, it will auto detect the paper size. It will let you, with a touch of a button, easily crop it uh, to the proper size. Um, and then it will visually enhance the photos so that you can see it. You, does this need to be a black and white photo, a, a grayscale photo, a document? Um, is it something that needs to be in full color? But what really sets PDF Pen Scan Plus apart from all of the other applications out there is that it includes built in on the app on your iPhone, not sending it off to some third party service, OCR support. And OCR is that ever so critical optical character recognition, which means you take that text off of whatever it is that you've just scanned and you can now use it any other way you want. Maybe you want to use it in an email message. Maybe uh, you want to highlight it and do something with it. Maybe you just want to export it to PDF that has that searchable text so that you can use it later. That's fine too. But one of the things that I will commonly do with it, because PDF Pen Scan Plus allows you to upload these documents, you can keep them on your iPhone, you can sync them via iCloud, but you can also upload them to any number of cloud services, whether it be Dropbox, whether it be iCloud, whether it be Evernote, whether it be Google Docs. All of this is possible with PDF Pen Scan Plus, and then you can do really fun things with them. So here's my classic example is I get a document let's say a receipt, I scan it, crop it, enhance it, automatically OCR it, and then I send it up to my Dropbox. 
Okay, and then once it's up in your Dropbox, then magic happens because you can have Hazel jump in and automatically file it for you. It basically, it gets into your whole Mac ecosystem. Mm. And the OCR to me is the key because I love making Hazel rules that have OCR built right into them. And they're gonna, you know, they're gonna read the receipt, they're gonna put it where it belongs, and then you're gonna be all done. You don't have to spend any more of your time. See, David knows me so well. He was able to jump right in there when I was having a, a coughing fit off mic and, and finish the ad read. I appreciate that. But yes, that is exactly what I do with, with PDF Pen, Scan Plus, and Hazel. And it's just magical. And what I've done with Hazel is I've pre-configured a couple of things. Where do I commonly shop? The drugstore, the hardware store, um, and it will automatically scan those, configure those, uh, and put them uh, exactly where they need to go, whether it's sending them off to a special folder or importing them, in my case, into Evernote. And it's absolutely magical. Uh, you can find PDF Pen Scan Plus in the App Store. It's available for $4.99. Uh, so go check it out. And thanks, Smile, for your kind support of Mac Power users. So, Katie, do you have a rule for your sandwich shop? Because I know you like your sandwiches. Um, I don't. I usually just keep rules for things that are potentially tax-deductible. Okay. Or or warranties. My my sandwiches don't come with warranties. Okay. Maybe they should. Maybe. Maybe they should. It's interesting to hear you talk about the sense of scanning on your iPhone and then sending that to something else because that was actually a workflow that I was like curious whether it would work, and it does actually work. So you take a screenplay, uh, just like that's printed and sitting in front of you, and I would yeah. uh, snap you know in the, the application, snap multiple pages, uh, have that be a scan, a an OCR PDF, and then just do the open in weekend read, which is our app, which could take that PDF and then melt it down to, an, you know, a readable screenplay on the phone. I wasn't sure that workflow would work, but it does. And it's remarkable that we live in a time where just on my, I can go from paper to something I can read beautifully on my phone, uh, just using my phone. Yeah. You know, and, and the fact that it does the OCR on the phone, I, I remember I, my problem with all this stuff is I'm old enough to remember how hard all this used to be. Like mm. I remember what it was like before Dropbox and I remember what OCR used to be like. You needed a really powerful computer and really expensive software and it still was kind of sucky. And now you've got an app on your phone that what is PDF pin? I think it's like five dollars. Yeah, four ninety nine. Yeah, and it, it will OCR in something like sixteen different languages. I, I just can't get over it, you know, yeah. when I start thinking about it. I think it's re- I think it's remarkable. Yet at the same time, I'm a little bit frustrated that five dollars is probably as much as they're going to be able to charge for that. When that app should be, in my opinion, should be a lot more, should be cost a lot more than that because the technology and the amount of time it took for them to build that app is staggering. And yeah. um, the fact that the economics of the app store have worked out in a way that that's probably the best price for them, um, but it's not really the right price for them in a weird way. Yeah, no, I, I get it. And, and the thing that's scary is there's developers that, um, you know, I am a discriminating consumer. If I get an app and it looks like there wasn't a director behind it, there mm-hmm. wasn't a vision. I don't care if it works or not. I'm not going to keep it. Yeah. I, I want an app that, that does tell a story that works with me, not against me. Yeah. Well, that takes time. And, the people who make apps like that are at a disadvantage in a system where you're supposed to sell it for 99 cents. Absolutely. I, I don't know what the future holds for all of this, but it's kind of scary. But for now, what I tell people is when you see an app from a developer, you know, don't go crazy if it's going to cost you $10. I mean, how much money did you spend at Starbucks in the last two days? Yep. 
Well, the other thing I think is you have to realize is that there are people behind that app. Mm-hmm. There are people that this is their job. Um, that's They get up and when they go to work in the morning and someone gives them a paycheck, it's based on what they've done and it's based on the app sales. You, know, you want to get paid when you go to your job, don't you? But you know, I better I, be careful when we get the emails. <laughs> that's all right. They're already coming. But the, another uh, boomerang that we didn't really talk about in your app business, and, and I, I don't know if this caught you or if somebody warned you, but as soon as you start selling an app or a book in my case or anything, you're going to get requests for support. Mm-hmm. And people out there are buying your product. They're going to need help once in a while. And that's something I think a lot of people don't even think about, that it, it costs money to keep that support up and running. It does. And and honestly, the apps that we've chosen to make are some of the most dangerous in terms of support because almost all the apps take an outside, um, something that you're generating outside, you're bringing into the app, and then we're doing something to it. And that is incredibly uh, challenging thing to do because you're never quite sure what file someone's going to be throwing at your app. And so in the case of Highland, if someone throws a screenplay PDF at it, we're going to do our very best to parse that and break that down. But we have no idea what application made that app. And we have no idea until it was page by page, we have no idea what we're going to find. And so there's this expectation, well, like, well, that should work perfectly. And many times it does, but sometimes it doesn't. And so Dealing with those situations where it doesn't can be really frustrating, and our inability to directly talk to consumers unless they actually email us can be really frustrating as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine that you would have anybody potentially upset with you when you make an app that they write their life, you know, long dream screenplay in. Yeah. I can't imagine anything. <laughs> no, would why, ever why, how wrong. could they possibly be upset? Because <laughs> um, like, you know, nothing ever goes wrong. Nobody nothing ever could ever anything. go wrong. No, you're fine. Let's talk about some of the apps that you use um, that we haven't mentioned today. I'm sure you've got some things in your menu bar or in your dock that you really like that um, don't get much attention. You know, I love Skitch, and Skitch is a a product that Evernote ended up buying. Uh, I use it a lot for screen grabs, for like if I, as I'm doing sort of visual research on things, if there's something I want to remember, um, I'll often use Skitch to grab um, a portion of of whatever I'm looking at and just be able to tag it and stick it into Evernote. I, I found Skitch to be. Uh, incredibly useful. Um, I use Text Expander for the sort of the common boilerplate things that I want to have, um, that I want easy access to. So I ended up making uh, expanders for like the Highland URL for the Mac App Store. So every time I need to write that, I can just type Highland URL as one thing and then it ex- auto expands out. Um, I find those to be incredibly useful. I already talked about Workflowy, which I think is fantastic. That's how we actually do all the all my planning notes for a given podcast will always be in there. Um, and then on the email side, right now I found I'm using three different clients, which seems crazy, but I use them for different accounts. And so I do the bulk of my Gmail stuff, which I'm trying to use as my main work thing. I do an airmail now, which I've loved airmail. That's um, a good app. So many people have said we need to get on board with AML because I have just uh, Mavericks and Apple Mail and Gmail have just been not happy with me they're they're not happy together so i still have check my mac mail i only have my gmail at at, through airmail and i find that because i'm used to using that app for just the gmail i use my delete key very aggressively because i know that all stuff's gonna be archived i'll always be able to get back to it and so it's very easy to clean out your email that way do you find it frustrating though having to go to different places to check email (sighs) 
a little bit. And yet sometimes I, I really like that separation because so my Gmail is there. My, my sort of work Gmail is there. I have a more personal account that I keep through uh, 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 just normal mail. And then I use Sparrow for all of the uh, people writing in with uh, stuff about the apps or about like t-shirt sales and all that stuff. Um, people writing in with questions for the, the website. All that stuff's kept there and it's just compartmentalized. And I don't even check that every day. Uh, my assistant also checks all those accounts. So if there's something crucial that comes in, like when you guys wrote in about, hey, would you want to be on the show? Stuart saw that first and like flagged it for me. But I can just go through that when I feel like I need to go through there. But it, it never it never demands my attention. And so keeping that so, away so that, in a whole separate app is great. Can I take a little tangent for a second and and ask, how does that – and I, I know Stuart is your assistant because we've corresponded with him a little bit. Yeah. But I've always – is he a virtual assistant? Is he there with you? How, how does that work having an assistant helping you manage um, manage your life when you do the type of work that you do? I'm curious. Yeah, so Stuart's here every day. Stuart's here from 9 to 6, and he works downstairs. I work upstairs. Uh, okay, so he's f- physically in the same place that you are. That's physically helpful. in the same place. He's always he's always around. And um, and I've had an assistant right from the very start. Um, it's it's really useful for just, you know, can you proofread this? Can you run that errand? Uh, can you keep track of my schedule? Can you help me not – basically, it's very – bad for me to answer my own phone because that's sort of like pulling me out of my world. Even though phones don't ring nearly as much as they used to ring, it's still good to have somebody else answering that phone. Um, so an assistant's vital. And then uh, Ryan and Nima, who are uh, who work with me on the app stuff, they're in here about two days a week. And those are days where we're really focusing on app stuff. Um, and every, the rest of the time, they're virtual. Well, you know, that's kind of becoming a thing. Even um, there are now the ability to get virtual assistants and, and pay people to help you with stuff. Uh, maybe there's a show in that at some point. I don't know. But um, it is it is interesting as we have different areas of our lives and we find ways to compartmentalize them. The email is one of the big functions of that. I find it kind of interesting that you're doing this with applications. Mm-hmm. So uh, so like so you like the podcast feedback is all going to a separate email account that you are only keeping in a separate application. That's exactly right. And then when you open your personal account, are you doing that in Apple Mail or some other application? Yeah, my personal uh, email is in just the Apple Mail. And on the iPhone, both my Gmail and my uh, Apple Mail, uh, my sort of .Mac account, they're showing up in my main mail feed there. But I don't, on my phone, I don't check any of that other stuff. That just, it's a thing that only exists on computers for me. Yeah, well, we're just like you're kind of upsetting the world and changing things with the way you write scripts. I think a lot of interesting developers are upsetting the Apple cart on uh, mail applications. And I think it's great because we're getting some really innovative solutions out there, both server side based like SaneBox. And then you're getting what Gmail does is interesting. And then you're getting these app developers that are making systems now that build in like the way to delay an email for three days. They do it on the app side. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm really curious. I, I think the next couple of years we're going to see a lot of innovation in email. I don't believe email is dying. I think it's something – it's still a great way to communicate for a lot of things. Yes, and but more of the interaction with people who listen to the podcast is through Twitter. And that's really, I think, sometimes the appropriate venue for it is that it's the short little bursts of conversation. And that's what I love to hear is, is when those, those – those, that little bits of feedback I think find Twitter much more useful for. And honestly, when I talked before about Slack, 
that is a much better way, that and Basecamp are much better ways to do the kinds of things uh, that we're talking about internally for app development. Because we used to do all that stuff in email and then like, where's that email? It was just sort of disappear and keeping it in Slack and Basecamp, it's easy to search for, you know, where stuff is. And, and where's the mock-up, et cetera. In fact, I, I would imagine Skitch is really helpful in the app development business where you take a screenshot and then you can circle something and say, I don't like this or something like that. Absolutely. The, um, yeah, the Sketch is a, one of those applications that I, I highly recommend, and I think they did a pretty good job with it on iOS. It, it, it to me, there's like a, a a middle period after Evernote first took it over. There's a period where I really didn't like it much. Mm-hmm. I think they kind of they they didn't make it as functional as it was before it was part of Evernote. But it seems like it's kind of pulled out of that now, and it's a pretty good app. Yeah, no, I've really enjoyed using it. Um, the only other app I'd single out on the iPhone is Command C, which is a way of taking something you've copied on the iPhone and sending it to your Mac. And so it's a uh, iOS utility and a Mac utility. And uh, it's incredibly useful for me when I need to take a screenshot and send it to the Mac so I can annotate something or uh, mock something up. Because a lot of times, if I'm mocking something up, it's really for the iOS. And it's a good way for me to take that file, take it into an image editor, and just very brusquely move stuff around to show Ryan what it is I'm looking for. Katie, have you played with Command C yet? You know, I downloaded it, but I I haven't played with it much just yeah. to send stuff it, back and forth. It seems like to be the leader right now in the share stuff between iOS and Mac category. No, it, it's impressive on that way. I think the last uh, Mac utility I'd I'd say is I don't have to write a lot of code, but when I do need to write code, I end up just using Code Runner, which is a clever little um, Mac application that just lets you pick which language you're in. You throw it some code, it throws you the output. And so most of the coding I do is just in CoffeeScript, which is a little superscript of JavaScript. And it's for just taking, like, sometimes I'll have to take a giant word list and process it in a certain way. And it's a great quick and dirty way of doing that. So rather than firing up something like um, TextMate or something bigger, it's just a, a quick quick and dirty little utility for that. Yeah. Speaking as someone who's not much of a coder, I, every time I do something like that, I feel kind of like a badass. Yeah. Do you get that feeling too? Absolutely. Like you know, <laughs> I was able to take something that would have been hundreds of hours of work, and with you know twenty minutes of work, I was able to get something to happen. A good coder could have done it with probably one regular expression in a, yeah. in, in, in five minutes. But uh, it is nice when that happens. I'm learning regular expressions, and it's, I feel like I, it's like Superman. It's like I have a secret yeah. thing under my clothes that I can just go fly when i want it's it's great you gotta you gotta try regular expressions yeah they are impressive yeah. oh boy uh-oh that got that got a little weird <laughs> it did get a little weird there yeah it did well john thank you so much this has been amazing where can people find you where can people find all of your your great work and and find you on the web fantastic uh on the web i'm johnaugust.com uh on twitter i'm at john august um our podcast script notes is in the itunes store to search for script notes we also have an app there for script notes um all of our software is at quote unquote apps.com so that's where you'll find highland we can read uh, ronson watermarker other stuff coming soon um so that's yeah that's that's me this has been really fun it's been great to talk about some stuff we don't normally talk about on our show yeah it is and people are really fascinated to hear how how people are getting work done thank you All right. Well, thanks to our exclusive sponsor for this episode, Smile. 
We will have links to everything that we talked about in this episode in the show notes. You can find those at our website at MacPowerUsers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MacPowerUsers. You can send us feedback to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com or you can find us on Twitter. We're at MacPowerUsers. Katie's at Katie Floyd and I'm at Max Sparky. All right. Thanks again for joining us, John, and we'll see you all next time. And everybody go watch Big Fish. Yeah. That's your homework. Thank you very much. <laughs>